Jesus, today we come, as always, to worship you as those who just can't help it. That is, that is our heart's desire. We know that with all the distraction and frustration and anxiety causing news that occurs even right up till the moment of our worship time, it's easy to forget that we came here because we were drawn together to celebrate your great love and grace and to honor you as our king. We once again submit ourselves to your authority over our lives and ask that you make us less focused on ourselves, on our desires of the flesh. We ask that you help us to resist temptation, to be more focused on what is possible by the power of your Holy Spirit and on things that please and glorify you. Well, God, help us in that spirit to frame our prayers. We are grieved and disappointed because loved ones have died. Help us to remember that death is as grievous to you as it is to us, that it's more so for you because it was never part of the plan. Lord, we often forget that this was not the way it was designed to be, which is why we instinctively suffer at our time of loss. And yet in this and in all things, you, you bring a redemptive glory and power to it. You, you turn those bad things in our lives into something that has merit and goodness to it in the way that you bring out in us inner strength and unity and joy. In our grief, you turn our sorrow into compassion and you turn us into people who are a little less hung up on ourselves and our stuff and our status and our pride and you make us a little less fearful of the things we can't wrap our minds around simply because of death. And so we thank you, Lord, that you redeem even the worst things that happen in our lives. And we ask that you teach us to be more like you every day, even through these difficult times. We do pray, Lord, nonetheless, that your spirit would intervene in those parts of our lives that can be changed through our prayer, those opportunities for medical professionals to be made better than they thought they were, opportunities for business decisions to glow with your glory, opportunities for the church to really manifest your spirit in the simplest of its deeds. Oh, God, help us to frame everything in our lives this way so that when we pray that the toothache might go away, that the fever might break, that when we pray that the financial burden might be relieved, when we, when we pray that uh, our family relationships might be mended, you know, when we pray about all these things, Lord, help us to frame them according to your 
kingship in our lives. Help us to see ourselves and our times from an eternal perspective, we pray, Lord, so that we're not so tempted to get in such a hurry as to make rash and foolish decisions or to say rash and foolish things. Oh God, there's so many things that are left unsaid even as we try to pray as one body today and we're grateful that first of all you have the infinite capacity to hear every thought and every prayer in every moment. We take comfort in knowing that you are with us now informing our spirits with your spirit. And with that in mind, we will bring our prayer to a conclusion, but our relationship with you, well, that just goes on and on. And so, Lord, as a final word, we join together in the words that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. If you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to use that again today, same passage as last week. We'll come to it in a moment, so you just want to put your thumb on that and hold on. We'll, we'll be making a lot of references there, but uh, before we get into today's topic, let's just take a moment to do a little review from last week because we want to create a certain continuity here. We are in the midst of a series of messages that have a special uh, intention of reaching men, but you know, it's also good for our families. And so we're calling this series, The Spirit-Filled Life, and it's a series of messages for men and their families. Uh, remember that last week, in, we kind of did a broad view of chapters one and three of Ephesians, or one through three of Ephesians, and that's where Paul is basically explaining how it is to be a Christian. He, he explains how we got there. Uh, Paul shares this joyful truth that it was God's plan from the foundation of the world that all would be in his grace and would be members of God's family, of God's household for all eternity. That's always been God's goal. That was always the plan then Paul taught about the unity of believers based on this understanding, that if we understand in truth that we have been made members of God's family through our salvation, then that makes us family with each other. You know, it's difficult sometimes, especially when you're not altogether sure that you like being brothers or sisters with some of the people you know. But the reality is, is any person who has accepted Christ's gift of grace and has been born again, has been born into the same family that you were born into when you were born again, which means that you're related. Sometimes that's hard to wrap your mind around, but it's an important truth. Because one of the themes that's going to become very clear as we go on this morning is that God is particularly 
concerned about how the body treats its fellow members. There is something unfortunate that happens all too often in church, and that is the Christians are really unkind to each other, sometimes downright mean. And Jesus makes it really clear that this is grieving the Holy Spirit more than you can imagine. Is There's a clear distinction in the way that Christ interprets our world. There's a clear distinction between the body of Christ and those who are outside the body of Christ. And what we fail to remember quite frequently is that much of what's written in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, is written to the church. There are certain assumptions about these Uh, rules and activities that define what it means to be a Christian, uh, these are distinctives of the body of Christ. And therefore, when we Christians are cruel to each other, that's pretty bad, but it's even more unthinkable that we would be expecting people outside the body of Christ to behave like Christians. And we fail to remember sometimes that we hold people to standards that they haven't accepted yet when we grab a person living in a lifestyle that we don't approve of who's outside the body of Christ and assume that they should live as we do or believe as we believe, you you know, it's, so we really need to be clear on how it is that we are a family of faith in Christ and therefore we should treat the members of our family in a certain way, but then that suggests that we should also be a little bit more understanding of those people who are outside the family. So keeping that in mind, we want to recall that last week we were taught the basics of becoming a member of the family. That Christians are adopted as sons and daughters, the believers are redeemed through Christ's blood, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul gives a very clear set of expectations for how one becomes a member of the family of God. And this we call salvation, being born again. We have lots of cliche terms we use in church, and that's because they're rooted in things that are in our scriptures. But at the end of the day, we know that it's through repentance, genuine repentance, through acceptance of Christ's authority over your life, and then a commitment to a new life that begins with the transformation of your spirit. You literally get a completely new software upgrade inside, so to speak. So the spirit-filled life begins when you do all of these things and then it changes what you prioritize and how you look at your life. and. Uh, Men especially were resigned, uh, reminded last week to resist the temptation to be lone wolf Christians. Men were reminded that it's better to be a part of a church, even a flawed church, and around men who aren't perfect than to go it alone. And that was one of the key reminders from last week. Now, Accountability is where we left off last week, and that's where I want to pick up this week on the whole idea of accountability in the church. Unfortunately, accountability in the church always seems to come across as judgmentalism, especially to people outside the family of God. Christians are often written off as judgmental and callous and ignorant. And again, I think this is 
partly the result of too many Christians wagging their fingers at non-Christians and expecting them to conform to a Christian standard of living that a lot of Christians don't conform to. So let's at least confine our conversation to people who understand where we're coming from. The most gracious and wonderful thing we could do as we try to be vital to the well-being of this community is to understand that not everybody in the community understands or believes as we believe. So you can't really bring grace to them without the grace to let them be who they are and not know what you think is best. So one of the things that has to stop if we want to see new people filling the pews and coming to a new faith in Christ, the one of the things that has to stop is our cold-hearted judgmentalism against people who don't have any of the foundational standards that we take for granted. Because there's a lot of them out there, more than you might realize. Then we have this problem in the church that prevents a lot of people who call themselves Christians and believe in the same things we believe in, uh, being hard, hard on each other and judgmental towards each other about religion. I, I, for the life of me, I will never understand pastors who use their pulpit to deride and complain about other Christians. They do it all the time. They will stand in the pulpit and talk about why Catholics are all going to hell. They'll stand in the pulpit, and, and I've heard this. I mean, they, I've literally heard this. They'll stand in the pulpit and say that every Methodist who ever sprinkled someone at baptism has condemned that person to hell because everybody knows it's not a real baptism unless you get dunked. I hope you chuckle a little when you hear that. Because I'm not trying to be heavy here, I'm just telling you how it really is, as far as I can see it. And the reality is, is that if that's all you have to say from the pulpit, then that's really sad. You know, that's really sad. I, I'm not gonna waste my time trying to decide or then trying to convince you about how other Christians behave and whether or not that's right. <laughs> you know, if people will repent of their sin authentically, if they will accept Christ as their Savior and Lord and then submit to his leadership of their lives and retool all your priorities towards him, if you will accept the Holy Spirit giving you new birth in your life, you know, that's good enough for me. And if your demonstration of that commitment comes in the form of a dunking or a sprinkling or it just comes in the form of a confession of faith like the thief on the cross, Fine with me. I'm, I don't have time to deal with that. I don't have the energy to deal with that. God's in the business of making such judgments, and I prefer not to be. So the point I'm trying to make is the first thing we need to understand is Jesus really, really doesn't want us to be so hard on our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we're that hard on our brothers and sisters in Christ, then no wonder those who are not yet brothers and sisters in Christ find us so repulsive. It's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? First thing we need to know when we're dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ is that we're talking to someone who has presumably repented of their sin, accepted Christ as their Savior, 
and invited new birth through the Holy Spirit so that they can devote their lives to following the leadership of Jesus Christ. If that's the person you're talking to, you might want to be a little kinder to them. Just say it. And this brings me back to the whole idea of accountability, which is our theme for men, especially, but for all of us, is that's why when I said last week that we need to hold each other accountable in truth and love, that you would see that not so much as judging each other for how we do or don't do the things that we think Christians should do or not do, but rather to just encourage each other and say, remember who you are in Christ. I promise you, I did not know what the themes were in the Overcomer movie. And then when I went to watch the movie, I had to just sort of amaze, be, sit there in amazement at God because there's something about the Holy Spirit that ties things together that no human's clever enough to tie together. You know, you know what one of the big themes in the movie is? Knowing who you are in Christ. So I, you know, I just thought I'd preach about that, and then it turns out that's kind of a theme that the Lord is working around the world of Christendom. Go figure. And knowing who you are in Christ then becomes part of our work of encouraging one another and being accountable to one another in truth and love, because it just means that we don't, we don't condemn each other, we simply remind each other that we're trying to find our way to a destination that's pretty far off and it takes constant perseverance and that it takes a diligent commitment. And if we feel even the slightest bit of malice of forethought when we're about to speak to another brother or sister, we should probably just stop. We should probably just stop. If, on the other hand, we feel a great deal of love and compassion that feels as though it's the very compassion of Christ, and it inspires us to urge each other on towards the goal, that would seem like a pretty reasonable thing to do. Now, these are just some of the qualities of the new life, the Spirit-filled life. In Ephesians 4 now, which is the one we've been reading from, there are a series of things that Paul describes, and we're going to follow along with Paul in a sort of ordered way. So if you open your Bibles and look at chapter 4, first thing that Paul says is you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Well, that harkens back to what I said a minute ago about how we should probably be a little bit more understanding of the fact that we'll say Gentiles in this case means those who are living a secular life and have no particular religious affiliation, we should probably be a little more alert to how they look at the world and understand that we can't expect them to see things that clearly, at least what we think is important, without the help of the Holy Spirit. So when he says the Gentiles and the futility of their minds, what he's saying is now that you're not one of them, because he's writing to a church that was made up of Gentile, that is non-Jewish converts to Christianity. He says they're alienated from life because they, or from God rather, because of this. They, they don't know God. You talk to them about your God and about your Christ. You talk to them about what it means to, 
to love Jesus and to serve Jesus and the Gentile in this particular passage is the one who really doesn't understand what you're talking about. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where it sounds like you're both speaking English, but by the time you're done talking, it really probably more like one of you was speaking German and another was speaking Japanese. I mean, I've had conversations with people where no matter how long we talk, we are so far apart in our orientation that we might as well be speaking foreign languages. Have you had those kind of conversations with people? I have. And I hate to say it, but they quite frequently happen in church where you're, you're asking someone to see the big picture that you hold in your mind and they are so far removed from your perspective that they simply can't understand what you're saying, even though you're using words that they understand. And this is the way it is. It's, you know, it reminds me of when I was in the former Soviet Union, I, was, I found the Russian Cyrillic alphabet very frustrating because it looks like you should be able to read it. You know, if you've ever seen Russian words, you know, it all looks sort of English, but it doesn't make a lick of sense to an English person or English speaking person. It's pretty hilarious. I remember a, uh, I shouldn't go off on a tangent, Courtney, but I remember a tram traveling down the main street of Almaty in Kazakhstan. And on the side of the tram, it said barf. B-A-R-F. I don't even know what that means in Russian. I have no idea, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean what it looked like it said in English. They were advertising something that wasn't barf, but it looked like barf to my English eyes. That's how it is sometimes when we're talking with people Paul calls Gentiles. Let's keep that in mind. That should give you a certain compassion. And if I may be so bold, I'm going to give you a little personal insight here. I find that even people who have gone to church all their lives sometimes aren't speaking the same language as people who have really embraced a new life in Christ. And so even in our churches, we can speak religion pretty confidently to each other, but sometimes when we're talking about spiritual things, we're not speaking the same language. Paul says that we should focus our minds on other things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here's how it occurred to me yesterday as I was driving to Georgetown along the railroad that goes between here and there. And, and I, I thought, you know, when you become a born-again believer, it's like your train of thought moves to a different railroad. You know, when you're a born-again believer, you're taking your train of thought and putting it on a totally different railroad, which means it's got a whole new set of destinations and a whole new set of terminating points, you know? That's what we're looking for as born-again believers, a completely different way of thinking. What I would call that in a nutshell is having a biblical Christian worldview. It means you can't listen to the news or listen to each other talk without coming up with 
a biblical Christian interpretation of what you're hearing. That would be one of the greatest signs that the Spirit of God is changing your nature. Signs of the Spirit-filled life uh, give you a uh, different approach to many of the things that you feel. This is where we want to talk about emotions for a minute. I thought the other day, well, you know, months ago, actually, when I was planning these topics, and I thought, yeah, we're going to have a men's emphasis, and I'm going to do the second sermon is going to be on dealing with emotions. I'll bet men will get real excited about that. Because men love talking about their feelings, don't we? Right. Thought so. Why is it that for most men, there's only one emotion that really expresses itself outwardly, and that's anger? What is the deal with that? Well, Paul says that as spirit-filled believers, we don't lie. We speak truth in love. Well, you know one of the biggest lies that almost all of us are guilty of on any given day? That lie when we say, I'm fine. How many people know that when you say, I'm fine, most of the time it's not really true? The fact is that we don't sometimes want to be honest with ourselves. And we deal with truths that are uncomfortable for us in a variety of ways, but since we're focusing on men, I want to particularly analyze one of the things that men do. We have fears, you know, ladies. Men are afraid of things. Men have fears. You might get your husband or your gentlemen in your life to own the fact that they fear for your life and your children's lives. Most of us are not ashamed to admit that. They fear that they won't provide well. They fear that they will somehow create circumstances that have lasting negative impacts on their children and their wives. They, they have a lot of those kinds of fears and they might talk about that. But there are more things that we're afraid of than we can name, and sometimes we've buried it so deeply we don't even know that we're afraid. But you know, fear is almost always the source of some of the most negative things people do. Fear and grief are the most common emotions that all people feel, and grief we will own with a certain uh, honesty, at least when it's almost impossible to bear. But fear we can suppress so perfectly. In fact, I think it's part of God's design for men because after all, there are times when men have to courageously face their fears in order to confront really dangerous things. But that same quality causes us to do the harm that we fear most because we find ourselves suppressing anger, right? Anybody guilty of suppressing your anger over things? The Apostle Paul says in verses 26 and 27, be angry. He says it's okay. Exchange unrighteous anger for righteous anger. That's the difference, you know. 
exchange the unrighteous anger for a righteous anger. What is unrighteous anger? Probably the anger that you express in your car. Probably the anger you express on the golf course. You know, a lot of expensive clubs have flown great distances or been bent or broken. Uh, I could go on and on, but man, you get the idea. Here's what righteous anger is, in my opinion. I see this Band-Aid on my thumb. I did something painful to my thumb yesterday. I was angry for a second. <laughs> I think that's righteous anger. It hurt. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Now, righteous anger is anger over the things that God cares about. If you submitted yourself to the Lord's leadership in your life, then there are certain things that you just can't stand when you see them because of your biblical Christian worldview. One of those things is oppression. God hates oppression. It's evident from the beginning of the Bible to the very end. And oppression is the, the outward expression of the core of sin. Oppression is the outward sign of sin within because oppression is someone saying there's something about me and my life that's so important that it's worth taking away what's important to you and suppressing your joy and suppressing your freedom. Oppression when it turns into slavery, when it turns into condemnation, when it, it turns into cruelty. Oppression can be a society that has no regard for the widow or the orphan. And by the way, in our society, we may not think of widows and orphans in the same way that scripture describes it, but we have them all around us every day, even in this church family, because there are people who are powerless to change their circumstances. They are oppressed by their circumstances, and we are guilty in a way of oppression when we don't recognize that and try to do something about it. Here's another challenge for men. Do you know how many ladies especially have car troubles and they don't know what to do about them? And most guys, and listen, I know I'm speaking in general terms here, which means that it sounds like all girls and all guys are the same. And, you know, I, I understand. But in general terms, a lot of men are pretty handy with machinery and stuff like that. And there are a lot of women who are in oppressive situations where they... They're in a cycle of not being able to have a reliable car to get them to work, and then they, because they can't get to work, they lose the job, which means that they can't keep a reliable car. And this oppressive cycle continues unless someone intervenes, and sometimes it just takes a gentleman, gentleman to take a look at the car, look under the hood, go see Mike at the auto parts store, make a few tinkering changes or whatever, and someone's cycle of oppression begins to lighten up. Righteous anger is an anger over the things that make Jesus angry. Jesus was angry at the temple one time because people who were coming there to worship were being oppressed. He was angry because they turned it into a system where you were going to get fleeced by thieves and robbers who called themselves religious officials just so that you could do something that they had convinced you that your very soul depended upon. So they'd turn a system that was meant to be just and gentle and regenerative, and it was meant to be something that would really bring joy to the life of the faithful follower. 
of God and Jehovah in this case, and, and then they get to the temple and they would get fleeced as they made their way toward the place of worship by a bunch of characters who didn't believe any of it and didn't care about any of it. They simply wanted to see how much money they could get from these poor chumps in the country, from the country. You see what I mean? That made Jesus angry. We can recognize that kind of unrighteous behavior in our world, and especially oppression, and find it worthy of our anger. All right, men, let's wrap this up. Read the notes. There's more there than I've shared with you today. There's also a worksheet out there that you might find really helpful. But understand that when we are dealing with anger, it's usually something that results because we haven't processed a lot of other things adequately. And the anger is the final sort of explosive decompression that happens when we can no longer contain the emotions that we've been pen, penning up inside. And so we need to find a way to process that. We need to let God take the anger before it becomes an explosive kind of dangerous situation that leads to harm. Dr. Richard Berry created this acrostic that I'm gonna share with you now. And because I know that you're gonna find it helpful, I uh, had some cards made up with this particular acrostic on it and they're these little things so you can put them in your wallet or in your phone case or something like that and they're out there by the sermon notes you can pick one up on your way out but anger using the word anger as your guide a equals assess your feelings and there's a scriptural reference that goes along with that n means neutralize your emotions and g means gauge the anger and e means engage the correct person and r means resolve the situation before i drop this subject altogether let me just say that men if we're honest in truth and love may i say too often our families suffer because we've addressed our anger to the wrong person. Because we kept it to ourselves and only let it out in the place where we thought we could get away with it, which is at home. And more often than not, our families have done nothing to deserve that, except love you and unconditionally commit themselves to you in the way that no one else in your world will, which is why you think you can get away with letting the anger go when you're home. Look at their precious faces and think about how dearly you love them and then say, have I directed the anger towards the right people? And is it a righteous anger or is it a consequence of a whole lot of pent up other stuff that I really ought to deal with? Men, this is why we need each other. Not to talk about feelings, if that's scary to you, but to just talk about how much you love the people that God has given you and how anxious you are to avoid doing any harm. Because we can all agree about that. This is one of those messages where there's just a whole lot more to be said and there are so many elements of it that could be fleshed out for a long period of time and I simply don't have the time this morning. So I invite you to read the notes, both the sermon notes and the worksheet, 
And then consider getting together with one or two other men and ladies, you can do the same. Young people, you can do the same. And discuss this stuff further. I'll even be glad to talk with you about it. But for now, I've got to wrap this up so we can celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Forgive me for being too windy for the time I've been allotted. Lord, take what I've said and what, what I've written and, and own it. Make it your word with a capital W and then impress it upon the lives of the people that you meant to reach today. I'm just a, I'm just a messenger. I'm just a vessel. And some days better than others, but you can take it all and make it more than the substance of the deliverer. And I ask you to do that this day, especially as we come to your table, to receive signs of your deep compassion for us and your deep desire that we would internalize all that you are into all that we are as your forgiven family of faith devoted to your leadership. Amen.